please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're taking a brief break from our regular study through Luke's Gospel uh, today in light of this special Christmas season. Now, it's the normal custom for churches to hold a Christmas service uh, with a special Christmas message on the Sunday before Christmas Day, the 25th. Uh, but as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, this year is a bit unusual in that Christmas Day actually falls on a Sunday. And while I wasn't quite sure uh, whether people would expect a Christmas service on the 18th today, the Sunday before Christmas, or on the 25th, the Sunday of, and so in my indecision, I decided to cover my bases and do both. Uh, and so over the span of this Sunday morning today and next Sunday on Christmas morning, we will be in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel to focus our minds and hearts on the birth and coming of Jesus, our Lord. And today we will look at the first 17 verses, this genealogy of Jesus. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations, from Abraham to David, were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon. 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have opened your word, would you reveal your glory to us? The glory that came and was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to see him by faith. Help us to adore him. And give to him the praise that is so rightly due unto him. We ask in his most precious name. Amen. Given the fact that I've just advertised today as a Christmas service, it may seem a bit strange that we've turned our attention to uh, this passage of scripture. 
because it doesn't feel quite jolly and riveting to plow through this long list of names. It's probably not your scripture reading of choice by the fireplace on Christmas Eve. But actually, I would argue that this genealogy perhaps best captures the true spirit and excitement of Christmas. Because it communicates to us the joy of the Advent. Now, I'm sure you've heard this word tossed around a lot to refer to the Christmas season. You've heard things like an Advent calendar where there's chocolate inside for each day that you're counting down to the day of Christmas. But the question is, why do we use this word? What does it even mean? Well, the word Advent means arrival. That something or someone has finally arrived. And that's the heartbeat of this genealogy, that after traversing through generations after generation, over centuries and even millennia, it finally culminates and rests upon this one name, Jesus. So as to say, he is finally here. He has come. And the the advent, the birth of this man named Jesus is the reason for all the joy and cause for celebration because his entrance into human history is the greatest news that has ever graced this world. And so that's why Matthew begins his gospel record with this ecstatic announcement by presenting Jesus's family tree and lineage. But as we read this passage, perhaps we might feel that it's Kind of a uh, curious way to make a birth announcement. I mean, let's be honest, it seems a little bit long-winded. You could have just sent the postcard. Or, I mean, more seriously, at the very least, you could have just gone to the point by beginning in verse 1 with a more straightforward statement. Guess what, everybody? Jesus is here. And then here's his uh, birth story. And then you go straight into verse 18 where his birth is described, which we'll be looking at next week, uh, Lord willing. But instead, we're given thousands of years of ancestral data. I don't imagine that when any of your children were born, you announced their birth by uh, shipping out what looked like a big Yellow Pages book filled with a list of all your ancestors. And so why then does Matthew present Jesus' arrival in this way? It's because if a picture is worth a thousand words, this genealogy is worth a thousand pictures over thousands of years. What I mean is that all these names and generations, they collectively tell the story of God's redemption of sinners spanning all of human history. What he planned and promised long ago from the beginning and Jesus being the fulfillment and realization of that gracious promise that was being unfolded over the generations. You know, in a way, this genealogy encapsulates the message of the entire Old Testament and really punctuates the whole point of the New Testament, which is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, something noteworthy about this passage is that it begins, this genealogy begins with Abraham in verse 2, and it goes through a very important individual, King David, in verse 6, until it arrives at Jesus in verse 16. And Matthew goes out of his way to highlight these two names, which is especially apparent in the first verse, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And again, in verse 17, 
uh, as we see uh, this genealogy being grouped into the generations around these two individuals, Abraham and David. And so the question for us is, well, why are these two people so important? Why do they stand out amidst all the other names that we see here? It's because it was to Abraham and to David that God made two foundational promises of the Old Testament. And it was through these two promises, or the fancy word for them being covenants, it was through these two promises that God was unfolding his redemptive plan for sinners. And both of these promises, what they have in common, they really wanted the same promise, but what they both had in common is that it had to do with one of their future descendants. Let's begin with Abraham. Early on in the book of Genesis, God told Abraham, who was at the time known as just Abram, he said in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, hey, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. This is my promise to you. Now, this promise was shocking. And it was utterly unwarranted and just inexplicable. Why? Because it was very clear, even just by that point, by the point of Genesis chapter 12, just the first 12 chapters of the entire Bible, it was very clear that the entire world, all humanity, was uncontrollably corrupt in sin. And thus deserving of God's judgment and curses, not his blessings. You know, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell the account of creation, that God created the world as sinless and beautiful, reflecting his perfect glory. And with all of the blessings and generosity that he bestowed on the human beings, he made in his own image. They had everything, nothing lacking. It was paradise. But of course, Genesis chapter 3 We know that it was the fall of mankind, that the human race, as represented by Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they rebelled against God and fell into sin. They disobeyed God. They they rejected God as ruler. And from that point on, what do you have? From, From Genesis 3 onward, what do you have? You have this domino effect of this uncontrollable spiraling down of sin and its effects. Case in point, the very next chapter, Genesis 4. The very next generation, the second generation of humanity, Cain and Abel, two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. What happens there? Immediately we see murder. As Cain murdered his brother Abel. Violence and murder. And of course, Genesis chapter 5, there you see a long genealogy there. Uh, it, it lists a record of all the, the uh, several first generations of humanity. But what's the point there? You see this endless spread of death. So-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. It is the list of death, the effect of sin. And by Genesis chapter 6, we're just going chapter by chapter. Genesis chapter 6, the human race, the whole human race had become so depraved and so wicked that it was necessary for the whole world to be flooded by the judgment of God, purged of such unrestrained evil. This This would be God's mercy to the planet by purging it of sinful humanity. But... What did God do? 
Despite seeing that, that the, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was continually evil, what did God do? He preserved this one family. He showed mercy upon humanity. He preserved Noah and his family so that all humanity would not be wiped out entirely and the human race could go on. And so that's why you have the Noah's Ark as God appointed. And yet even so, as, as good of a news of, of His mercy that might seem, you fast forward to Genesis chapter 11, what, what do you find? Several generations after the flood and, and of Noah's preservation, you have the incident of the Tower of Babel, in which all humanity gathered together to declare mutiny against God. Worldwide rebellion and rejection of God. Now, what does all this show us? It shows that the atmospheric, atmospheric conditions of the world could be reset and humanity be given a fresh start, as it were, through Noah. But the real problem was not the external environment or climate, but it was the internal problem of the sin within, the toxicity and pollution of our hearts, desires, and wills that are opposed to God. And if we're honest, this is really true, isn't it? Why do people steal? Why do people lie and embezzle? Why do people hate one another and inflict harm and violence? Why do you get angry? Selfish. And sometimes hurt people with your words and actions. Your friends, your spouse, your children. It's because we are sinners by fallen nature. And when this reality of sin in every individual heart is permutated and and propagated to the mass scale of whole societies and nations and, and civilizations comprised of such sinners, then it inevitably begets war. Corruption, genocide, and every horrific evil uh, imaginable that we've seen even just within the last hundred years. In the last 100 years, two world wars, many other smaller wars, massacres, tyrannies, the list goes on. Uh, I'm sorry to ruin the jolly Christmas spirit and the warm fuzzy feelings for a moment, but let's just be honest. This is the grim reality of the world in which we live. The problems of this world are not ultimately because societal infrastructure needs to change. We can change all the laws. We can decree new policies, but those are external modifications, and they're never going to truly address the real root cause, which is the corruption of sin in the hearts of mankind. And so, even within the short literary span of less than 10 chapters from Genesis chapters 3 to 11, we see this unsalvageable, unredeemable problem of sin. This deep-seated enmity and rebellion against God who created us to know Him and to submit to Him who is the rightful and loving ruler over us. And the consequence of sin is eternal righteous punishment. do Do you want evil to be eradicated from this world? Then it starts with us, sinners, evildoers. We're the problem. And so in the perfect goodness of God, after already having given mankind second, third, fourth chances over and over again, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, he should have just said, I'm done with humanity. 
I'm giving them over to their sin, and I will just unleash my righteous judgment upon their evil. But again, what does God say instead to Abraham? What promise does he make? He says, I'm going to bless. Not just you individually, Abraham, but through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire God-forsaken world. I'm going to redeem this sinful, rebellious world and impart to them not the curse that they deserve, but the richest blessing that they do not deserve. And I'm going to do it, God says, through your offspring, Abraham, through one of your descendants. That was the plan. This was the gospel that God announced beforehand to Abraham, even back in the first book of the Bible, as Paul says in Galatians 3.8. This was the good news of God's grace and plan to save and redeem sinners from their sin. Now, the details of this plan were not fully revealed to Abraham. I mean, how, how, how is all this going to happen? Who, who is this appointed offspring, this one future descendant of Abraham who would effectuate and bring about this plan of redemption? Well, this very question and anticipation An expectation had occupied the minds of Abraham's descendants for generations to come. Namely, the people of Israel, the nation that God had established upon the foundation of the 12 sons of Abraham's grandchild, Jacob. And as the centuries went on, as each generation of Israel passed, the build-up crescendoed. When is this offspring coming? Who is he? Well, about 1,100 years After the initial promise that God made to Abraham around 1000 BC, God elaborated a little bit more on the details of this offspring by making another promise to King David, who himself was a descendant of Abraham, but he was not the descendant. And and God made this promise to David not as a separate promise, but one that was building upon the promise he had already made to Abraham. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God told David, the king of Israel, one of your descendants, David, who naturally would also be Abraham's descendant, just as we see in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, he will reign as king forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. To no end. Now, if you really think about it, this tells you something of what an extraordinary, supernatural blessing this is. Because every kingdom rises and falls. And if you look with the wide perspective of history, you can't escape the fact that there is an expiration date for every nation, every empire. Every kingdom. Now, for instance, from 900 to 600 BC, give or take, Assyria was considered the world empire at the time, at least from the vantage point of the entire Middle East over which it ruled. I mean, they were the world superpower, the most powerful nation on earth, as it were, and they dominated for 300 years. It was too big to fail. And this was, of course, the empire that destroyed the northern kingdom Israel in 722 BC as an act of judgment by God, using Assyria um, as his instrument. 
But that was Assyria, the world-dominating superpower. But what happened? 7th century BC, they were overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. Who then took the crown? No, we are the king of the hill. And oh my goodness, Babylon was crazy. King Nebuchadnezzar was a crazy dude. They were so powerful. They just destroyed Assyria. Oh my goodness, they're the new regime. And then, 6th century BC, what do you know? Medo-Persia overtook that title. And it was through Medo-Persia that God uh, worked in the heart of King Cyrus to return Israel or return Judah back to the land. And you think, my goodness, they now are the real deal. They will never die. But then they were overtaken by the Greek Empire. That's where you have Alexander the Great. You probably recognize that name from history class. And then after that, well, even Alexander the Great, he wasn't so great after all. Because he died kind of young. And then the whole empire fractured. And then came the Roman Empire, under whose regime Jesus was born. You see, if you were living in the times of that empire, you would think, oh, this is it. I mean, this is, this is the status quo forever. But look, this, this pattern should tell you something. There is no hope in any nation or empire or civilization on earth. There is no security, no security of permanence, prosperity, and peace And even the greatest institutions of this world, the best that history has to offer, that that is to say there is no lasting hope in the things of earth. That's what this pattern is showing us. And I know we live in cushy America, and in many ways it, it is deemed the most powerful nation on earth, the world superpower as it were. And we live under the illusion as a result of it that everything that we have and we know of our regular life today, it feels permanent. But listen, times can change really fast. I mean, I hope it doesn't, but I'm just saying it can. This country can eventually go down in the history books as just another Babylon and just another Greek empire where things were prosperous and there was a semblance of peace and stability. But suddenly the tides of global affairs could turn. The next thing you know, all the citizens lose everything. Everything that you thought was secure. Your house, your freedom, your assets. The testimony of history is this. Earthly treasures rust and corrode. And you can't ever really rest and find perfect peace in this world. This fallen world is volatile, restless, and exhausting to live in. That's why you you keep up with the news all the time. You'll just, you'll go nuts. Isn't this what God told Adam of the inevitable consequence of his sin? That by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. To dust you shall return. You will toil That is the reality of living in this fallen world. And yet, to this sinful world, God made this gracious promise. David, through your descendant, that worldwide blessing I told your ancestor Abraham about, it's going to look something like this. I'm establishing an everlasting kingdom through him. Which means... Under his rule and reign, there will be true rest, true peace, and security forever. 
comfort from the toils of wandering through the wilderness that is this world marred by sin. Eternal riches that will never rust, nor will moth ever destroy. Oh, what compassion and mercy from God. A real lasting hope for a hopeless world. This was the good news of his redemptive plan for sinners, foretold through these two promises made to these two individuals in the Old Testament. It was the greatest news. And and anyone uh, listening with ears to hear, they would be yearning to know, who is this promised one? When is he coming? Who, Who is this chosen, designated one to bring God's promise to his realization? Who is this anointed one? That's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. In English, it's the anointed one. It's the same word, just in three different languages. Who is this appointed, anointed one that God has promised who will bring all of these hopes and dreams into fruition? That was the burning question and anticipation. So you see, all throughout history, God's people longed for the day that he would come. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Because when he comes, his coming, his advent, they knew it would mean everything. Because this one person would be the fulfillment of every hope and longing. He would be the peace that everyone is yearning for, the rest that everyone is laboring for. See, this is the drama saturating this genealogy. This is the pulsing heartbeat through every name, through every generation, the waiting and pining for the long-expected Christ, the Anointed One. And when we get down to verse 16, Matthew finally announces, He has come, and His name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ that we have been waiting for. He has entered into human history by being born into the household of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, speaking from our vantage point today. This is the Christ. He has already come. No more waiting. No more searching. He came just as God promised. Now, if that's who the Christ is, the question is, How has he fulfilled God's promise to David and Abraham? I mean, is that even really possible for such promises to be realized? Because here's the thing. If you have any inkling of a conscience, you would be wondering, aren't we sinners before an infinitely holy God? How can we receive any blessing from him? I get that God, God's good intent and will, but how do the mechanics of that work? When we are sinners, we are guilty. Isn't God also righteous and just? And being perfectly just, He cannot just condone and overlook sin. So don't we deserve the curse of His righteous judgment instead of that blessing that He promised? Is that an empty promise? And, and, and how is it any good news that He will reign on the throne of His kingdom when as sinners, look, if you think about it, We are by nature rebels against God. That's how the Bible explains the nature of sin. Which means that we are not 
considered his loyal subjects of his kingdom. But we are considered rightfully his enemies. He is opposed to us. So if he comes to establish his kingdom, it's not actually bad news. Because we are not members of his kingdom. We are not members of the kingdom of God by default, by our fallen nature. This means that we are all destined to be banished forever into the outer darkness and exile, alienated from his courts, away from his presence, outside the refuge of his kingdom. And so how exactly is the advent of this Christ any good news for sinners like us? Well, the rest of the New Testament explains and answers that question. That John 3.17, God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The King has come, you see, not to consummate His reign immediately, but first to rescue people into His kingdom. To call unworthy outcasts Guilty criminals to enter his gates through him because he is the gate. How so? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, namely the wooden cross on which Jesus hung. You see, the undeserved, unwarranted blessing that God promised to Abraham, it has been made possible for us to receive because Jesus came to take on the curse that was meant for us. He came to live the sinless life of perfect obedience in our place, which we all fail to live. And He suffered on the cross in our place, not only suffering the the physical death, but suffering the infinite wrath of God, His righteous judgment and punishment of evil that sinners deserve. Because on the cross, Jesus was trading places with the sinners He came to save. All who confess their sin and put their trust in Him. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that God made Him His Son, who knew no sin, who had nothing to do with sin, who was utterly sinless, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the inconceivable blessing of God's grace in the gospel that guilty sinners like you and me could be considered perfectly righteous because Jesus' perfect obedience and righteousness is attributed to sinners who turn to him by faith as though they had lived Jesus' perfect life. While their sin and guilt is attributed, um, imputed to Him as though He had lived our sinful life. That's what Jesus came to do, to totally swap places with sinners that He might receive their deserved curse so that they might receive His deserved blessing and reward. And for all who simply confess their sin and entrust themselves in what Jesus has done for them, 
They are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, as Colossians 1.13 says. We can enter His kingdom. That is the good news. That is why Jesus, in His ministry, He always said, I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom. And this kingdom is not just some geographical territory, just another piece of land or regime like every other earthly kingdom. But it is the very household of God. As it was first mentioned to David back in 2 Samuel 7, that his descendant who would reign over the throne of his kingdom forever, that he would build a house for the glory of God's name. And that house, as we find out in the rest of the New Testament, is the very family of God into which sinners like us are adopted as his children. It is the true temple of God that is the church, Ephesians 2. It is the assembly and gathering of God's people of all ages and backgrounds and cultures and nations, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, because our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone, because we are sinners who have been born again by faith in Him, forgiven of our sins, gathering together like this as God's beloved children. Church, this Local congregation is the kingdom of God, along with our other brothers and sisters and other congregations throughout the world. This is the kingdom of God. Do you understand that? Where Christ rules over us by His Word, and we joyfully submit to Him in worship and thankfulness and praise for who He is and what He has done for us. And every Sunday in which we gather together to worship as His people, You know, every Sunday, what we do here, this is a foretaste of heaven. And what that tells us is this. This is eternal. The world will perish. Every nation will rise and fall. But God's church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a foretaste of heaven. The worship of our God and King and the fellowship of His people as we love one another as Christ has loved us. This is the promise and blessing of heaven. This is eternal life purchased and guaranteed by our Lord Jesus. And this will never be taken away from us. See, we are a people of the joy of undying hope because even death will only usher us into that imperishable state of being in the presence of our King Jesus, face to face forever with the rest of His people. And all of this, because 2,000 years ago, God was faithful to fulfill His promises in the advent of Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed offspring of Abraham, and the chosen descendant of David. If you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in the Christ who is Jesus, this is God's free gift to you. Undeserved, unmerited. This is what Christ has done for sinners like us. And this is the joy, the true joy of Christmas, that He has come for sinners like you and me to rescue you. Simply just confess that you are a sinner and trust in what He has done. Receive Him by faith. 
and, and heed the testimony of Matthew. Look, I mean, this genealogical record, well, what does this tell you? How long it is? How detailed it is? What does this tell you? This is historical reality. This is a real family tree. This is not made up. It's a real family tree like yours and mine. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not some cute holiday tradition. The, the true message of Christmas is not just some Disney fairy tale. But this genealogy of Jesus is God's notarized publication of the good news of his grace to a world lost in sin. This is the truth. You know, it's so interesting that there, there's really something magical, as it were, about Christmas time, isn't there? I'm not talking about magic as in witchcraft or wizardry, but I, I mean that there really is this strange, fantastical wonder every year when Christmas gets near. Almost this uh, breath of hope and this little taste of an otherworldly happiness that swells in the hearts of even the unbelieving world. Everyone gets very happy. It's the happy, jolly Christmas spirit. And, and I've noticed that it doesn't happen with Thanksgiving. As, as good of a holiday as it is, even New Year, despite the theme being, oh, a fresh start, a new beginning, time to get your gym membership, and you're not going to go after March passes. But, but Christmas, there's something about Christmas that tickles the soul's innermost appetite for childlike wonder and, and, and this hope for, for a utopia of a beautiful, almost celestial kingdom. Hence things like winter wonderland. What, what, why is that? What is it about Christmas? I wonder, I wonder if it is because of the common grace of God that as the unbelieving world makes some tacit acknowledgement of the advent of Christ this time of the year, they are given little drops and sprinkles of this heavenly joy to taste, which thrills their souls. And God's intention is that they would come to the source of all those drops and sprinkles, to the very fountain from which flows every blessing, that is, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ of Christmas. And praise God that we have come to know why there is such joy surrounding His Advent. And we are able, as His church, to channel our deepest jubilee and awe to the One who has come for us in amazing grace and love, the One who gave Himself for us, who has come to bless us, and the one who is so worthy of our utmost worship. Church, may the joy of the gospel bless your hearts this Christmas season. What a blessing it is indeed for us to have all of our hope and rest and peace found and secured in Christ alone. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the vastness of your immeasurable love and your inconceivable grace and mercy to this world lost in sin that you sent forth your Son 
when the fullness of time had come, you sent our Lord Jesus for us to live for us, to die for us, and to resurrect in power and triumph, to give the hope of life eternal. We thank you for the blessing of salvation in him. And we give you all praise and thanksgiving. And we thank you for the blessing of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, because it is even through this that we see that you are the one who blesses us before we ever bless you. That that he is the one who has given himself to us and that you have come to feed us hungry, pitiful, starving souls, dying and perishing with the food that endures to eternal life. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son. Help us to receive this sacrament of the bread and the cup by faith and to render to you all praise and thanksgiving that is so befitting your holy name. In that very name of Jesus we pray. Amen.